This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we take a tour through the history of contextual criticism that surrounds the Gospel of John, and we look at the unique styles and attributes of John's writing. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm just going to use a text we recommended at the beginning of our John series, Brent, to kind of guide our way. Um, it was kind of my favorite text of all the prep work that I did. It's by Dr. Gary M. Burge. And it is called Interpreting the Gospel of John, the second edition, a practical guide. And uh, I like this source. Um, I was getting ready. I wanted to kind of like at the end of our study with John, I wanted to kind of do like a high level. Let's just kind of circle back around and appreciate some conversations from the 10,000 foot level. And so I pulled out all my resources one last time just to make sure. And I just thought this book did such a good job talking about things and summarizing things in such helpful ways. And really, I'm only going to be using the first part. So there's three parts to this book. I'm just going to be focusing on part one, which, let's see, what are they? Part one, he calls. Oh, he has a title here, Before You Begin. So it's kind of like all the the background stuff. Part two is kind of like how to do research. And really, it's just how to do any research. If you're a grad student in particular, um, I feel like it was almost written for like, I wonder sometimes if he gives it to his grad students and says, here, read this. It's going to help your experience in grad school. And then the last part of the book is about how to preach and teach um, responsibly out of the Gospel of John. So I am just going to work on part one, the first four chapters and kind of similar to how we use that other book, um, Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity, that book. I'm just going to kind of use it as my guide for conversation. But uh, Dr. Burge has written all kinds of sources we found out on John, right, Brent? Yeah, he's got a – there's like this giant NIV application commentary series that is written by a whole host of people. But uh, Dr. Burge does the – entries on the book of John, as well as the letters of John. I didn't see one on Revelation, so I don't know who's doing Revelation, but uh, he's at least got those two things going on. I love it. If we uh, if we get lucky, we're working on trying to arrange an interview with him that we can have after these couple episodes and talk to the man himself, the scholar himself, and see what kind of fun we can have with that conversation. So we'll see if we can get him over here to join us. Yeah, we are going to take the next this episode and the next episode to cover these first four chapters of his book, uh, which he mentions he requires his students to go over these first four chapters, like his beginner students go over these first four chapters before they ever look at the actual gospel together. So this is like his foundational stuff. Here's what you need to know before you dive in. Uh, so that's what we're going to, I mean... We did mention at the beginning of the series, maybe we should have done this. Well, actually, <laughs> at the beginning, but yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to say. And I'm going to circle back around to that idea, I think, today before we're done, but maybe tomorrow or maybe in our next episode. I'm not sure. But I, I took the opposite approach and I'll, I'll kind of talk about why. Um, but yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I think that's very, very interesting. Totally understand that. I'm going to I'm going to flip it and do it backwards like we did. But maybe we'll chat about that. Yes. Potential discussion fodder if we get Dr. Burge on the podcast. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I like that. We're taking notes already. We got we got a Google Doc running right now, Brent, with all of our 
questions we keep coming up with for a potential interview. Uh, let's say we dive right in. You ready, Brent? I'm ready. Sweet. All right. Chapter one of his book uh, titled History of Interpretation, he just kind of goes over like, historically speaking, what has the popular consensus been regarding John and how has that opinion evolved? And so he starts even with a whole section on just like the early period, really, really almost like like the first 1,500 years of church history, and basically says John was pretty consistently uh, kind of regarded as the gospel of the highest honor of the four gospels. It was kind of the most honored gospel um, for a good long time, over a millennia, and was seen by most as the gospel with the most value uh, historically by the church. And then we we bump up against the Enlightenment, and he has he has a section on each of these things that you could just go deeper in if you wanted to get your own your own book. But the Enlightenment, and he's referring specifically, he says to eighteenth nineteenth centuries in Europe. So, if you were to think session five, this would be this is going to be the world that that kind of births and then comes out of the French Revolution, like right in the middle of this Enlightenment period in Europe. You have this post-Christian world being birthed out of the French Revolution. And so everybody starts asking, this is the rise of textual criticism. This is the rise of people asking critical questions about the Bible and and generally being driven by a, I don't want to say an anti-Bible bias, but like a, a, a questioning of the supernatural, a rejection of inspiration, a... An, and at this point, we're not dealing with the rise of liberalism as we would know it, but this is going to be the age of textual critical scholarship that begins to arise where we start to go, maybe the maybe maybe supernatural things didn't happen. So that's in the Enlightenment, everything shifts away from John being the gospel of highest honor and, and most value. And, and in the Enlightenment, everything shifts to the synoptics are the ones that have historical value. But John is no longer seen at that point in history as being your historical record. Um, that's no longer the the case. And so that, that really continues uh, until early 20th century. And then all of a sudden we start to have this awareness of the Jewishness of the gospel. Um, let's see, what do we got here? 1924. He talks about uh, a Jewish scholar by the name of Abrahams. Let's see if I can find the actual, uh, what was the name? Israel Abrahams. That's a very Jewish name, if I do say so <laughs> yeah. myself. It's about yeah. as Jewish as you yeah, can get. See, you really can't do any more than that, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> in 1924, this is a quote. In 1924, Israel Abrahams, a rabbinics scholar at Cambridge, and an Orthodox Jew addressed stunning news to the University of Theological Society, to, to the university's Theological Society. Here's his quote. Uh, Abraham said, To us Jews, the fourth gospel is the most Jewish of the four. And which was stunning to the status quo, even today. Like a lot of people read John and just a cursory reading, if you don't ask a whole lot of deeper questions, if you don't pull apart, like we spend a lot of time in our podcast, Brent, pulling apart the word Uduai, and what does that refer to? The Judeans, the Jewish leaders, the Jews. If you just read it 
on the surface, it feels like a very anti-Jewish gospel. Like it can almost be seen even today as like the most anti-Semitic uh, of the four gospels. But this scholar suggested 1924, the most Jewish of the four. And really when you when you look beyond some of those surface things you notice, you don't have to get much below the surface at all to really notice a whole lot of other elements that are are very um, uh, very Jewish. And so everybody had looked at John up to that point, and they had noticed the super Hellenistic influences. We talked about that in our Session 3 podcast. We talked about it throughout our study here. And, and they said not just Hellenistic, but most scholars in the Enlightenment period said Gnostic. So not only Hellenistic, not just Greek influence, but Gnostic Greek influence. And so their conclusion was the author of John is not the Apostle John, but is a later, probably second century, they thought, Gnostic, Greek Gnostic thinker. But Abrahams show that the discussion was not Gnostic, but also, but distinctly Jewish. Now, from there arose a conversation, maybe it's a Hellenized Judaism, which I think begins to start to turn towards and face and work really well with what we're suggesting throughout all of our studies of John. But this was the first kind of turn. So it went from, you know, 15, 1600 years of John is like the greatest gospel to all of a sudden John is the, the least historic like the 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 least historical gospel, the the least historically reliable gospel, the most Greek, the most Gnostic, to all of a sudden in the earliest twentieth century, the conversation shifting towards maybe this is deeply Jewish and maybe a, a Hellenized Judaism, but that's how the conversation begins to shift and to change. I I do wonder on the on the point of the Enlightenment. Um, I mean, if it's if it's tagged around the French Revolution, that is late eighteenth century. So maybe this is a little bit of a stretch. But like the early sixteen hundreds, uh, you know, late fifteen hundreds is really when you're starting to get the Bible in the common language of the people. And so, great point. by this yep. Enlightenment period, that's kind of the first time in history where everyone you've grown up with has had access to the Bible in their own language, generally speaking, like obviously it's different in different parts of the, of the world, but we are talking about Europe. So does it have anything to do with, you know, this more common understanding of the scriptures, this more um, familiarity that, you know, the common people have, or is this shift in thinking entirely academic and it, it wouldn't really have mattered because they're all, studying it in Greek and Latin and whatever anyway. Yeah, I think the easiest way to probably give just to, to talk about that would say it's it's largely academic. Although that academic conversation is truly as you point out widening and blowing up to a much wider I mean as universities begin to multiply and sprout and scholasticism takes root and evolve that conversation is getting wider at a really fast pace. I would still call it academic, but it is definitely the fruit. Uh, and I love you pointing that out. I wouldn't have thought to point it out, but the printing press, the reformation, getting the Bible in the hands of the masses. This is the fruit of, we've now sat with the Bible and looked at it and asked questions and studied it and cared about it, you know, for a century, a century and a half. And now the fruit of that conversation is a new discussion born out of these questions uh, 
simply because we got we got the Bible in the hands of more people. And and that is a beautiful thing, even though it led to some conclusions that I would call suspect. But the, <laughs> the ongoing, evolving conversation, beautiful. And right. I find that inspiring. Um, so the traditional understanding at the same part of history, so early 20th century, 1920s, you know, before that, after that, right, right in that period, give or take a few decades, the traditional understanding was that the synoptics, and when we say synoptics, remind our listeners what we're talking about, Brent, before I say that word another hundred times. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are the three Gospels that seem to work together. They harmonize easily, John being the outlier. So the synoptics, everybody assumed the synoptics were dependent on source material. What we mean by that is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their Gospels based on source material that was compiled outside of the gospel itself. So there were stories, there was teaching. You'll often hear um, the academic community talk about source Q. Um, and that there were all of these teachings that apparently the early church had in some form, and those are what were used to construct your gospels, particularly the synoptics. And so everybody assumed the synoptics were dependent on some kind of Christian community source material, but John was not which led to many people thinking, well, John essentially invented. Like the reason why John's gospel is so different, it's not a synoptic, is because, again, earlier they thought some Greek Gnostic author kind of created these very Christian teachings based on the you know, theology of Jesus. Or maybe it was John, but John wasn't using source material. John was kind of creating, inventing, writing from scratch his own gospel that was that was the traditional understanding. And then in 1957, uh, Dr. Burge is going to talk about uh, a scholar by the name of Robinson. What's the name here? John A.T. Robinson. Uh, he was at Trinity College uh, in Cambridge, and uh, he was doing some work. Uh, let's see. He did a paper that was uh, – he read it at Oxford University, and in that he described what he called a new look – that there was an old look, these traditional understandings. There was an old look, an old understanding, an old wineskin, if you will, um, of the Gospel of John. And he was saying there's a new look, there's a new paradigm, there's a new way to look at the Gospel of John and the and the data that we have. And so in it, he had five things that, that Dr. Burge outlines here in this chapter, five things in this new look. Let me just give you the quote here. In it, he described an old look on John that was under siege. The old look consisted of five major propositions. So this describes the old look. Number one, John is dependent on sources, in particular, the synoptics. So John is toying off of the synoptics. The synoptics were toying off of sources. Number two, John's background is difficult, excuse me, different from that of its subjects. The author was Greek writing with significant Gnostic influence. This is the old look. Uh, number three, the old look, John is not a serious uh, witness to the Jesus of history. Number four, the old look says that John shows evidence of a late first century theological development. So this doesn't represent early first century. It doesn't represent the theology of Jesus. It represents a more evolved late first century theology. Um, and then five, the author of the fourth gospel is not the apostle John or even an eyewitness. He says, this is what we, 
This is the old look. This is what people have kind of assumed. These are five assumptions from the old world. But Robinson was saying we have to we we now have to see all five of these elements radically differently, and he made his case. So um, he started a whole new conversation. Then in 1963. Which, by the way, if we just pause for a moment, I know that for some of our listeners, A, this isn't all that exciting or intriguing. I, I freaking love this stuff. Like, I could just study textual criticism all day long because I find it so it, – it gets my creative juices firing. Like, I love to have somebody – oh, gosh, somebody asked that question. Oh, that's a really great point. And I hardly ever like agree with the, where they land with the question, but the question itself just gets like – my creative brain like flowing. And I, I just love, I love, I love textual criticism for that. People sometimes think I love textual criticism because I agree with all of it. I, I, I think I hardly ever do, but I love to study it because of how it helps me think critically about the Bible. And maybe even to clarify on one of those old look points, the idea that the theology in John is a late first century development. That is more or less when we suppose the Gospel of John was written down and recorded for the first time. But we're saying that's when it was actually written down, but it reflects Jesus's actual theology versus what they're saying is it was written at the, at the same time. Like, I think everybody more or less agrees on when it was first written, but they're saying that the theology within it comes from that later period and not from Jesus. That's right. And, oh, I can't wait for our next episode. So I'm just going to I'm just going to put a pin in it. <laughs> okay. But uh, the, these five points, by the way, if you're if you're able to engage textual criticism without like freaking out and losing your breakfast, like you can see how all five of these old look points make sense. Like if you were paying attention to our study on John, like John is dependent on sources, particularly the synoptics. Maybe not. Uh, let's go to the another four. John's background is different than that of his subjects. I mean, John was radically different, wasn't it? Brent, you feel like? Yeah, the writing, of course, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how can Matthew, Mark, and Luke be so similar and John be so different? John is not a serious witness to the Jesus of history. I mean, when you think about the gospel, you're like, well, it just seemed it just seemed on the surface less historical, um, seems more artistic. John shows evidence of late first century theology, theological development. The theology of John is packaged radically different than the theology of the synoptic. I can understand why that was the old look. The author of the fourth gospel is not the apostle John or even an eyewitness. If all these other things, you can look at those five and go, that's not crazy. Those people aren't crazy. Those make sense. But I, I love what Robinson said. I think there's, I think there's more. And that led to an evolution of the academic conversation. And so in 1963, you had another scholar by the name of Dodd, and he suggested, kind of based off of this new theological conversation, this new, excuse me, historical academic conversation, he starts suggesting that there was actually independent source material for John. And this whole conversation is what we might describe, what, what Dr. Burge might describe in his first chapter here, as the new look, the new look at the Gospel of John. And so we actually have a diagram, Brent. Uh, from the book, we're going to credit that in the show notes. Post it there. Give credit to the book. It's on page twenty-one. I think you're, I think you're probably going to be able to see it in your chapter art. But you have here a diagram, kind of reflecting uh, the historical tradition in John. So what they have here, if you see over there, you have John's Gospel, and the old look 
basically suggested that John's gospel was completely dependent on basically Mark, Matthew, Luke. But this new look says, I think we got multiple things at play. And so if you look at this diagram, you've got like the sources, the stories about Jesus. Now, if we believe that John was an eyewitness, the actual John, some of Zebedee, which I do, um, the book here isn't making those hard and fast conclusions. It's representing the whole conversation. But if we would assume that obviously these are stories that John remembers personally, I'm not suggesting anything else. But we also seem to get the impression that these gospel writers didn't just go to their own memory, but they also went back to other sources, people, stories, traditions, and they asked the Christian community, what was that story? What happened? Do you remember any of those stories, Brent, where <laughs> when you read it, you're like, wait, was like John hiding in the bushes? Like we talked about how Chosen has them like sitting outside the door when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, if you remember, because somehow you got to have like, how does John figure out where to write this stuff down? Well, part of it is the source material he's using. So you can see the source material there. You can see that the diagram shows Hellenistic stories with a question mark. Now, if you listen to me, you know that I don't think there's a question mark there. I think John is absolutely without a doubt employing Hellenistic stories. And he's taking the early collections, uh, early collection sources like Source Q, as maybe the academic community might talk about it. He's using that. And then this graph has Mark because scholarly general consensus is that Mark was written first, then Matthew, then Luke. I, you've heard me say I disagree. I think Matthew was written first. And then, so I would swap in this diagram, Matthew and Mark. I would also keep a question mark that I would assume is gone, but it's, I don't know if we know for certain that John is toying off of Matthew's record and Matthew's gospel. I do, I do think I would remove the question marks in that diagram, but that diagram's super helpful to see this is not what they were assuming in the Enlightenment. They were assuming that John was almost independently making up his gospel, inventing his gospel with the help of the synoptics with no other source material. But the new look says, no, I think we absolutely have source material at play, and we will probably get into that in our next episode. So that's your, that's your, I, I found that diagram super helpful. And then he closes off chapter one with a discussion about current trends, uh, current trends. So what is modern day 21st century scholarship saying about John? Uh, he has a, how many points does he have here? He has a handful of points. Number one, one trend we have already seen. This is where, this is current, current 21st century, modern right now, today scholarship. One trend we've seen, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has sparked a renewed interest in the Jewish background of the fourth gospel. Love that. Number two, the second area of development has to do with historical location. If it's true that we may locate the fourth gospel in a Jewish context, considering that this context experienced sharp disruption in the Jewish War of AD 70, scholars have expressed genuine openness to an early setting for the gospel. What you were just referencing a moment ago, Brent. I love that. Uh, point number three, a compelling interest among many Johannian scholars today is the quest to unravel the literary structure of the fourth gospel and its sources. We'll get into that a little bit today and even more in our next episode. What are the literary, what's the literary structure? What's the literary structure of John? Number four, if there was a Johannian history, 
or process within which the fourth gospel evolved, there is also an interest today in re, uh, reconstructing the social realities presupposed by the gospel. So what is the historical context? And you can get a real appreciation for how, how the challenge of and rigor of the academic quest, because Bema has the luxury of just smashing all this stuff together into a trendy little podcast and putting it out there in a form that we love. But the academic world has to, I mean, any one of these questions is a huge undertaking to really, and, and the beauty of the internet and the world we live in is that Marty or anybody else just gets to take these things and these beautiful discoveries and these wonderful studies and, and put them all together and package them in a way that's palatable, but um, man, what a what a thing. Uh, number five, many scholars in the field do not ask questions, at least primarily, about the history of the text, the state of the Johannian community, John's historical trustworthiness or sources. Rather, they ask how to make sense of the text as it stands. Above all, the sense of the text is determined as a reader interacts with the story. For, the, for some, this is known as the rhetorical analysis of the gospel. And then finally, two more. Uh, Number six, for about 10 years, the discipline of biblical studies has been looking at the relationship of the New Testament to the ideological aims of the Roman Empire. So what is the relationship between John's gospel and Rome's gospel, in essence? Shalom and empire, we might say. Number seven, the question of the fundamental historicity in the fourth gospel will never disappear, and discussions are always ongoing. So uh, that Chapter one was just kind of a brief overview. Where what has our understanding of John been over the last two thousand years? And that was chapter one. Before we move on, Brent, any thoughts or anything about uh, chapter one? Yeah, I'm just thinking about this diagram about uh, you know what if John has all these potential sources, like he's maybe he's looking at the completed gospels uh, of any of the other three writers. Maybe he's looking at their early collection of stories that have been compiled by whoever. Um, maybe he's thinking of the stories originally. And I wonder if it if it's the kind of situation where, you know, the disciples are sitting around together and, you know, Matthew's sharing some ideas that he's putting together for his gospel and then, you know, somebody somebody random like Bartholomew is like, Oh man, that reminds me of that time that Jesus put the mud on that dude's eyes. You remember that? That was crazy. And John's like, Oh yeah, that was awesome. I remember that. And, and everyone's like, Oh, we forgot about that when we were putting our gospel together. I'm not really sure where that would fit. And John's like, well, I'm going to make sure that goes in mine. Like maybe it's something like that where, you know, there's just, I mean, as John said, there's so many, there's so many stories. If you told all of them, there's not enough room. Like, all of these guys have to have to make selections about what happened. They have three years of, of stories that they have to condense down into these gospel accounts. And, you know, they're each taking their own flavor to it. And John's like, well, there's so many other stories. I got to figure out how to fit some of these in there. And that's, I mean, I kind of feel like John was probably there for, you know, most of those, maybe there's some that he wasn't around for to some extent or another, but he at least probably heard about them, at the campfire that night, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know the, the idea of how much did John actually eyewitness 
how much did he just hear about later that day? How much did he, you know, maybe he went to, he was sent to go to town to do something and something happened while he was gone. Like there's so many different dynamics there to what his level of eyewitness would be. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I think those are amazingly great questions and so fun to think about. I have like, I'm fascinated with some of the theories that some of my teachers, teachers, have formulated about the construction of the synoptics. Maybe there's a place someday, sometime, where we can talk about that. We have a couple of listeners here that have been very helpful. Uh, shout out to David Kopp and just the things he's been able to connect me to. There's some incredible theories with um, with the construction of what we would call the synoptics that fascinate me. I'm not going to get off on that. I'm trying to focus on John here. But when you think about how those conversations and the construction of these gospel accounts come to come into being as we have them and know them today, there are some fascinating questions. And I know that I'm just kind of a sucker. I'm such a chosen fanboy for so many of these things. But in in season two, where they depict John, remember how it opens and closes with John writing his gospel. Do you remember that Brent? Oh yeah. And he's got Mary there and he's talking to like, I love that because he is, he's interviewing with intention. He's interviewing the disciples. We know that Matthew's making his account brilliantly done by the chosen. Um, but, but I love how they depict John and he's obviously talking to the disciples, but extend that, that picture, that image, that mental, you know, uh, painting, extend that to like other eyewitnesses. And what if he went to places where stories happened and found the woman that, you know, experienced the healing and, and talked to that person whose son it was, the officials, talked to the official son. And like, if he went back and had those conversations, this really starts to take, like, you could, I don't want to over-dramatize it or, but, but you can really feel how this can be real, like real, real. And I, 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 I like the mental exercise there. Well, and just the, the depiction, and we talked about this in our episode, but the depiction of John sitting on the stairs, listening in on the conversation with Nicodemus, it's like, man, if I was in John's position, you better believe I'd be sitting on those stairs, listening in at what <laughs> Jesus is saying. Like, I mean, it's true. Like it's true. every opportunity I'm going to be listening to, I'm just going to be soaking in every word of Jesus. So uh, like it just, whether or not he was actually there for that conversation or maybe talk to Nicodemus later, whatever it is, like. I just feel like if John had that opportunity, he's going to be listening in. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, yep. It's a great example of something that feels a little fanciful to me, but you're absolutely right. Like there's, there's a ton of reason to think about the probability that that would be the case more often than not. I totally agree with you. Oh, let's see here. All right, let's keep going or else we're going to have a super long episode. So chapter two, I'm not even going to dive into. It's basically a chapter on, you know, who wrote the Gospel of John, the debate about authorship. Is it this John? Is it that John? Is it not a John? Is it a community, an early church community? Um, And does a really great job. Really, you've got these three, you got these three main theories that drive the conversation. Is it John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle? Is it the early is it the early church community in the name of John? Maybe even a group of John disciples that that they call the Johannian community. Like people will talk about the school of John, like there is this understanding that John had a unique style, a unique teaching, and he passed it on to others, and they're the ones that wrote the Gospel of John. So not John himself, but a community. And then, or finally, that earlier idea that's no longer. I think 
Dr. Birch calls it in vogue, this idea that it's some later Greek Gnostic second century author. Not too many people are talking about that anymore these days, but those are kind of your three options. John, the early church community, or some later Gnostic author. Obviously, I'm going to lean to option one, maybe with some influence of option two. I want to talk, if we get a chance to talk to Dr. Burge, I want to talk to him about the possibility of that, um, which might be a bridge too far for some of our listeners. It's not for me. Uh, it doesn't affect my views on inspiration at all, but it, it may for others. So you're welcome to disagree with that. But nevertheless, I mean, it's clear in Paul's writings that Paul often has somebody else doing the actual writing for him. And then he, you know, writes his greeting in his own in his own hand. But like the idea that other like disciples of John would be doing the actual writing as John is compiling these stories, you know, and obviously I think what they're saying in those theories is, is more than that sometimes, but even the idea that John himself didn't write it, I don't think it's that much of a stretch for most people. No, that wouldn't be a stretch. I think that number two theory certainly presupposes the absence of John, the death of John and you have a community um, putting that together without his involvement. Typically is what the academic option number two is uh, putting forth. But I, I like to make it a little mushy and wonder if the two don't go together, but we'll see if we get the chance to talk to Dr. Burge about that and get his opinion. I'll, I'll get into that in the next episode a little bit. You'll hear some of my personal unlicensed uh, unlicensed leanings like my i have no right to say this uh conviction type stuff because i'm no scholar but you'll hear some of my own musings in the next episode but um i wanted to skip chapter three that's what i want to do next episode is just focus on chapter three chapter four the last of the part one of dr burge's book here uh talks about john's style uh, what is what is the style of the Gospel of John? And so he opens up just with a section talking about, you know, just things that are unique to John, um, unique to his writing. Uh, and, and you have to be able to recognize this stuff. And 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 maybe Jesus did have these ticks and, and say things exactly like this. And yet maybe this is also just the way that John likes to write. Um, in John, Jesus always uses the double amen. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. Um, Jesus addresses his audience as children. Uh, and John does that in his other letters. Dear children, always talks to people as children. Um, uh, narratives are often continued using therefore or thus is a word, a transition word that John loves to use in a unique way that's not present in the synoptics. Um, just has a whole list of things. He has actually 10, 10 items there that he goes through. Um, things that are just unique, styles that are unique to John. But then there are these other things about John's style. I would call them, I think I would call them motifs. And by that, I don't mean motifs in like, we talked about in session three, Brent, we talked about, and I don't know if we want to link that in the show notes or not, but we talked about content motifs. Like we talked about the temple motif, the third temple motif in John. We talked about the scapegoat motif in John. We talked about the seven signs and a new creation and a tomb in a garden. And we talked about like what I would call content motifs, motifs of content. But um, Dr. Birch here points out like stylistic motifs. 
um, in, in how he writes. Uh, he talks about the motif of misunderstandings. Misunderstandings. He identifies seven of them. Uh, the Samaritan woman misunderstands Jesus' reference to living water. The disciples do not understand what Jesus means by food. The crowd misunderstands what Jesus means by bread from heaven. The Jewish leaders are confused and misunderstands uh, about Jesus's origin um, in Bethlehem or Galilee. Jesus's opponents misunderstand the discussion of Abraham in chapter eight. The disciples think Jesus believes that Lazarus has only fallen asleep in chapter. There's a motif of here's what Jesus is saying, but here's what people think he's saying. Misunderstanding. Um, uh, he has a motif of ironies. I kind of like this one. Let's see here. Ironies. Um, Within John's story, I'm reading right now, within John's story, it isn't just that uh, the actors misunderstand Jesus, but there's a peculiar ironic aspect to what's happening. In fact, some scholars wonder if the entire message of this gospel is ironic. The word of God who created the world is rejected by the very world he made. Moreover, this world succeeds in killing him. Uh, he is lifted up on the cross, but we know that a deeper reality is at work. Jesus' death is his glorification in which God's deeper purposes are worked out. That crucifixion is described as glorification is perhaps one of John's deepest ironies. This is more than just misunderstanding. This lets us see that something more profound is happening than anyone expects and that there are uh, those who are confused can even be left not only in the dark, but also stumbling foolishly. I thought that was really well written. And so uh, Dr. Burge identifies 12 different, he always picks very Jewish numbers, by the way. Um, he identifies 12 different ironies. He has a list of those. Uh, he talks about another motif being what he called, what he calls the asides, the asides, uh, like the kind of the parenthetical comments. Um, uh, let's see, I'll, I'll give you a quote here. Therefore, as we as uh, Therefore, we as readers can easily get the impression that John is on our side. He's telling a story, but at the same time, he's aware that we are there. We are his allies. He is like the director of a great drama who stands out on the sidelines coaching our understanding. In fact, there are, uh, in fact, we are more informed than the apostles when we read this gospel because John is slipping us notes. John is coaching us a little bit later. He says this, John is coaching us, making sure we understand the synoptic gospels uh, do this too. Like Mark seven, three, we're given a quick explanation about purity hand washing. However, John has elevated this to a level that the synoptics do not have. Um, there's a motif of hierarchies of meaning. And I really like this point. I had never really noticed this until I read his book here, but he pointed out in John six, there's like, and he, he, he describes it in his diagrams like a staircase. Like you start off with this basic understand, like a, a, a basic meaning, but then there's a greater meaning followed by a greater meaning, followed by a greater meaning, and finally an even greater, like you, you build meaning upon meaning. So he does this in John 6, which is what I feel like Josh's two-part journey and his amazing two episodes that he did, like that's what Josh was leading us on was, okay, there's this, but it's also more than that. And so there's that, but it's also more than that. And he's taking them even deeper than that. And then he's taking them even deeper than that. And I feel like Josh tapped into that uh, really well. So way to go, Josh Basse. Um, yeah. And so he just kind of diagrams those things out. 
And then finally, he talks about one final motif being the hidden glimpses of Christ. The hidden glimpses of Christ. Above all, John wants to coach us into belief. And so uh, he has hidden in his story elements of Jesus's identity that no one in the story can fathom. I call this the invisible Christology of the Gospel of John. In reality, John has presented me, these are quotes, by the way. In reality, John has presented me with an experience parallel to that of the actors on stage. I am confronted with revelation that I barely understand. I am coached on some things, such as the use of stone jars and the name of seas, and I'm left alone in others. John suspends me, leaving many of the most profound answers in abeyance. Did I say that word right? Abeyance? A-B-E-Y-A-N-C-E. I love it when authors use words I'm not familiar with. Uh, abeyance, I think. Yeah. Love it. Anyway, those are just some cool little snippets that I, I pulled out. But yeah, I just... It, and again, and next episode will be even more this way. I wanted to wait... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into this a little bit on the next episode. But like you, like you pointed out earlier, Brent, he gives this to his students to read before they study John. I wanted to wait until afterwards because I just wanted to like hear the text, think about the text. I didn't want all the jumbled up. Well, what if this was this? And what? If, and it'll get even crazier in next episode. But I, I wanted to be able to just hear John, and then after I've heard John, okay, now consider these things, and then go back. And that's how I prefer to interact with textual criticism because I feel like if I start with textual criticism, it I, I don't know. It's probably my fundamentalism impacting. There's still some fundamentalism in my roots, Brent, and I feel like I always want to start with my inspired text, do everything I can there, and then and then keep asking great questions and not be afraid to change and grow and shape my understanding and take new positions and learn new things. I think the fundamentalist in me unapologetically, I'm not, I I don't feel bad for it. I always want to start with just kind of the text alone and then start to learn and shape from there. I think that's why I, and I say that out loud because sometimes when you talk textual criticism, I know there are some of our listeners that get nervous. And so I like to let them know. Yeah. Me, me too. A little, um, but uh, hopefully we do it in a way that can be trusted and, and safe and good. And, and uh, yeah, I want to be somebody that can be trusted with textual criticism. So there you go. What do you think? I think that's a good idea. I think <laughs> like the, I don't, I don't know if this is a good analogy. I'm like thinking of this on the fly, but like the idea of grasping the text and then opening your hand up and like, depending on how you say this, it sounds really bad, but like seeing where the wind takes it and it's like, oh, yep. that sounds pretty sure. bad. Yep. But also wind means spirit. And yeah, like, are you tuned into the Holy Spirit? Are you open to God revealing truth to you in some way? Maybe that you didn't see it. And then, you know, you, you see where that takes you, but then you, you take grasp of it again. And so you're, 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 you're never letting go of the text forever, but you're never holding it so tight that you can never, um, be inspired by God and shown new things. I don't don't know if that's a great analogy or not, but no, Brent, I, I actually really love that because in the world of fundamentalism that I was raised in, 
I feel like there's just this pure objectivity to the text, but it's kind of like immature, uninformed. Um, so it's just like pure objectivity. It's grasping the text and just white knuckling even harder and harder and harder onto the text. But then textual criticism like seems to take this enlightened, educated, now we know even more, but it just seems to get even more objective even more distant, even more cold. And I like to use textual criticism in a way that opens me up so that Jesus can keep trans. So it takes that grasp, the where I started, rooted in something good and authoritative and inspired, but probably misunderstood, probably incomplete, probably immature. And then I love your image of like opening my hands, learning new things, seeing what, not what the scholars, not what the smart people want to tell me, but what the spirit wants to tell me, but not pure, purely subjectively informed by objective, historically rooted, good stuff. I like my technical language here, but I, I like that. I like that image of like grasping, but opening my hands, letting it be shaped, grasping and putting away some more and opening my hands again both with this objectivity and subjectivity to it. Like objectivity in that it's rooted in something real and not just my feelings or my thoughts or what I think, but something objective, but also open to what the Spirit is doing and what Jesus is revealing to me and saying to me and telling me and working through others. And I really like that. I'm probably going to steal that. (laughs) Uh, Well, if that's what you want to call it, sure. You can steal it. Okay, well, uh, let's uh, close up this episode, I guess, and then we'll be back uh, for some more discussion. Some more discussion. I'm kind of excited. Probably won't be a long episode next time, but I'm kind of excited about the the goodies (laughs) in the next one. Oh, famous last words. Uh, Always. (laughs) All right, well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, check out this book, Interpreting the Gospel of John by Dr. Burge. Uh, It's not not a difficult read. It's... uh, you know, something, if you didn't pick it up at the beginning uh, and you made it all the way through John and you're just like, oh man, I can't, I'm sad that John's over. Like, get this book, go through it, and then dive back into John again on your own. Like, yeah, if we're, if we're doing this analogy, like grasp the text and then let go for a moment and, and then come back and grasp it again. Like, don't, uh, don't let this be the end of the story of the gospel of John for you. Like, go back. Um, Anyway, you can find more details about the show at BamaDeceptionship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We will talk to you again soon.